today's show is brought to you by MacroHive, Four Guides' trusted research partner on all things macro. A research report on the run on Silicon Valley Bank and its consequences is included as a sample of MacroHive's work in the links below in the description. For a 40% discount to MacroHive Prime on an annual subscription, go to macrohive.com slash jack. That's macrohive.com slash jack. Or use code jack at checkout. Thanks. And let's get into today's interview. I am joined by Mustafa Chowdhury, Chief Rate Strategist at MacroHive. Mustafa, great to have you on Forward Guidance. Welcome. Thanks, Jack. Uh, it's great to be in your podcast. It's a great podcast. I always like like watching it so and listening to it. So it's uh, it's a great pleasure to be part of it. Well, that means a lot to me, Mustafa. A topic that is getting a lot of attention right now is interest rate risk and the degrees to which banks have securities on their portfolios, which have declined in value as interest rates have risen. There is no one on earth, Mustafa, who I'd rather be talking to than you, because I view you as the ultimate professional when it comes to hedging interest rate risk. So just to give the audience a sense of your expertise and sort of why they should be hanging on your every word, tell us about your background. How did you get into hedging interest rate risk and how did you see the field evolve over, over your you know, 30, year, 30 years? When I got interested in interest rate risk, I was going to graduate school at University of California at San Diego uh, doing a PhD in economics, uh, specifically econometrics. In the middle of my graduate school, as I was starting to write my dissertation, uh, there was a big event in the financial sector, which was the black, known as the Black Monday. Big decline in uh, the stock market. It's etched in history. The thing about Black Monday that really appealed to me was that uh, eventually it was found out that it was created by at that time, something that was re- relatively unknown, something new, which was uh, portfolio insurance, which basically companies would provide some insurance, uh, guarantee some insurance that the value will not decline beyond a certain level. And the way that they would do it is by basically delta hedging uh, a portfolio instead of buying optionality to to reduce the downside risk, it would just delta hedge. Early days of Greenspan, uh, the market, the, the shock was very big. The, the market fell very big. So all those insurance didn't make any, didn't do, provide any insurance. It just blew up. Like there's no, the, the insurance had no value. Then, uh, then it just clicked on me that that could be an interesting thing to study. It's, uh, it could also be very, data oriented, but also uh, conceptually very, very, uh, very interesting and uh, very real. So I did my dissertation uh, on this subject, uh, basically various uh, issues involving portfolio insurance and econometrics of portfolio insurance, etc. So I was into, into, by that time, academically, I was pretty deep into uh, optionality and um, the 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 non-linear non, the 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 fact that small changes in interest rates are very different from large changes of interest rates. So and 
So the difference is so big that if you're not aware of the small versus large, things like that are a big deal in, in the financial world. It's just, it's a big deal is that small versus large that till this day is not fully understood. So uh, I finished my graduate school. I taught for a few years in LSU where when Shakil was playing basketball there uh, and taught uh, the same thing, options, futures, uh, and more complex issues involving portfolio insurance in LSU Business School. Uh, after a few years, I uh, left to uh, left for the academics and decided to do the real thing. And where else can I go besides a big mortgage portfolio? Uh, because that's where more, there is more optionality than anywhere else. So I joined Freddie Mac which at that time uh, had a um, portfolio of MBS in their balance sheet, which they financed with issuing agency debt. And uh, it was something like a 250 billion-ish size mortgage portfolio leveraged up 40 to one or so. Uh, just the capital was basically, basically uh, regulatory capital. So the idea is to keep the value of the mortgage portfolio stable. So my job was uh, to manage that part, the, the what's known in the mortgage jargon, manage the convexity of the mortgage, uh, mortgage portfolio. The mortgages have extremely complex um, complex op optionality. You got the options arising from homeowners who prepay their mortgages. If interest rate goes down, they refinance and they go to another lower interest mortgage. But the investor who is investing in that, suddenly a, a premium mortgage disappears from their book and what they get back is a par, a new one. So that's the loss that they have from the refinancing activity. So, and if it happens in large scale, then the investor loses a lot of money if the prepayment ends up large and unexpected. Uh, so the, the prepayment risk is not a simple call option, like you just exercise and efficiently exercise, uh, and you know how to figure this out. Prepayment risk is very behavioral. It depends on homeowners, uh, all sorts of homeowners characteristics, geography, how much down payment they gave, uh, even things like age, uh, the, the multitude of drivers that are not economic still determine how fast or slow the homeowners would refinance the mortgage. Right, Mustafa, just to ex explain for the audience, so um, if if someone uh, gets a mortgage at, let's say, 8%, that mortgage is packed in, into a mortgage-backed security that uh, you know, likely will be at, you know, something like Freddie Mac, where you worked, uh, you know, hedging the mortgage portfolio of you know, was like over half a trillion, trillion dollars, which, which I want to hear about. Right. Uh, so the risk is, there's two risks. If interest rates collapse and fall very sharply, then people can refinance and people say, what's the problem? So they pay back their mortgage and, and get another one. What's the problem of being paid back? 
The answer is you'll be paid back $100, whereas you bought it at $104 because it had expectations baked in. Is that accurate? Precisely. And so for a 40 to 1 leverage portfolio, that $4 is the big, big number, big percent of your capital. Remember, you're leveraging it. So the convexity, then um, you lose a lot from the refinancing if really good premium mortgages uh, refinance out of your book. So that's the risk. And so so you worked at, at Freddie Mac where, yeah, over half a trillion dollar mortgage portfolio, you were responsible for hedging that and you were a pioneer in using optionality to to hedge that. So the, you have the risk if interest rates go down, you get paid before uh, you thought you were going to get paid, which doesn't sound bad, but it actually can be bad. And then what's the op- uh, risk if interest rates rise, which we've seen over the past year? If the interest rate rise, then you have the opposite problem uh, that um, the, the the typical um, bond, the, the mortgage becomes more like a regular bond where higher interest rate causes decline in the value of the bond. And for any bond, that's not prepayable, just a regular treasury bond. If interest rate goes up, the value of the bond goes down. And the reason is that the you are locked at the lower interest rate on that specific bond and the market interest rate is higher, so your bond has less value. And this, this risk of a bond is known in the bond world as duration risk. So when interest rate goes up, duration risk kicks in. But since you already hedged your bond ahead of time, the duration risk with increasing interest rates, your bond's mortgage's duration gets higher and higher relative to your hedge. And so you have a longer duration bond, uh, longer duration mortgage than you had thought initially. So if interest rate goes up, you are going to lose value. The first hundred, you lose some value. Then your duration also went up. Then the next hundred, you lose more. And then the even next hundred, you lose even more. So every successive hundred basis point is different from the previous hundred basis point. And that's called an, in the mortgage world, extension risk, that the mortgage extends to extreme long duration in this, which in plain English, homeowners uh, are not willing to refinance. They just hang on to it because they locked in a very low attractive interest rate. So you lose, lose on both directions. It's a lose, lose proposition. You lose when interest rate goes up a lot. You lose interest rate goes down a lot. And you are okay if interest rate fluctuates within a range. And that's the mortgage game. That's the mortgage game. These are bundled into mortgage-backed securities. And when people hear mortgage-backed securities, they think about the big short, about credit risk, subprime loans. What you've been focused on a lot, most of your career and what is the issue right now in the banking system is not that issue. It is interest rate issue. Uh, issue. A lot of the securities, most of the securities have been securitized by implicit or explicit government guarantee agencies such as Freddie Mac, where you, you worked, uh, uh, Fannie Mae, Ginnie Mae. And so let's just go to Silicon Valley Bank. They bought, let's just say, when the 10-year was at 1.5%, 
I'm just, the, the Ginny May was yielding 2.5%. So they got a 100 basis point spread that was trading at $100. Now those are trading at something like 80 or maybe $75, uh, depending. So, so how, how responsible uh, do you think is interest rate risk for the, the panic that we've been seeing in, in the US regional banking sector? Well, I, I can go to, uh, um, address the Silicon Valley ba Bank example and then see how it extends, in what way it extends to the overall banking system. For the Silic in, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, it grew very fast from $50 billion asset size to $200 billion plus. So they had a lot of deposits, must have had a lot of deposits coming in in the last year and a half. Uh, because they just, they have been, it's a phenomenal growth. So, so they put some of that money into a loan portfolio and it's never clear what the composition of the loan portfolio is. And that's where some of the credit just come from, but that's not caused them problem. The problem for them was that they, they couldn't lend fast enough. So they put their remainder of the portfolio, which is about 120 something billion into very liquid, high credit quality agency, Freddie, Fannie, Genie mortgages, uh, also Freddie guaranteed uh, multifamily mortgages, treasuries. If you look at those, you would feel that, oh, this can't this can cause a bank to uh, fail uh, at first sight. There are two interest rate risks that hit them. Interest rate risk number one, which is the, the, this first one is new, wasn't a problem when I was managing interest rate risk at Freddie Mac. The, uh, and the second one is the old traditional duration convexity mismatch risk. The first one was the uh, cash management deposit that how fast cash flies out of your, uh, of your portfolio. Uh, in this case, how fast deposit flies. And for the GSEs, it was never a problem because they could most often fund uh, in the because there is some sort of implicit guarantee, so not a concern. For the banking system, typically they do make it, they do uh, forecast what will be the de deposit, uh, how fast the deposit will fly out in various interest rate scenario. And you would expect if the interest rate went up and there was a uh, interest rate outside of the bank is much higher, people are going to gradually take your their deposit out. So you have to be prepared for that. And banks usually prepare for that through some modeling, et cetera. And then the, the models usually are similar to mortgages that there is some inefficiency in option exercise or refinancing. There, historically, there is some inefficiency in the speed with which people take duration, uh, uh, people take deposit out of their account. And the banks, that's also another source of prof profitability of the banks. In fact, if you read last two years of bank analysts' uh, uh, projections about bank profitability, they were expecting banks would be more profitable in the hike, not less profitable, because deposits are slow to move while their assets are going to go up in yield. So the margin will be higher and banks will do well. That was the expectation. So 
that uh, that also changed, and that's a big one. I will come to that, uh, and that's what was made clear by the Silicon Valley Bank that the, the two the optionality on two sides of the balance sheet, and both are sort of the institute. It's not just Silicon Valley; it's an extreme case, but the whole system has misestimated uh, both of both of the optionalities on both legs uh, of their balance sheet. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, the uh, the deposits just uh, uh, maybe because the most of the deposits were uninsured, so uh, that the risk was higher for the depositors. So they were monitoring it uh, more closely, and maybe because they were tech industry checking the more connected, same industry more connected. Uh, they also maybe social media that they could share that what's going on in terms of uh, alternative de deposit rates, etc. So deposits flew very fast, uh, faster than anyone with their wildest imagination. In the speed was specific to Silicon Valley Bank, maybe to this industry, but the speed is higher in general for the remainder of the banking se sector. I'll come to that later. Um, so clearly deposit ran out and they uh, and then they realized that they will have to sell some of their assets so they did another thing that's the microcosm of a problem for the rest of the banking system and that's the 125 ish billion dollars of securities that they have in their balance sheet they put most of them in a held to maturity account about $100 billion, and the remainder in an available for sale account. It's a problem to have so much highly convex securities in a health to maturity account. What it does is that you don't then market to market, so you don't really focus on the, that's losing value in a higher interest rate scenario. And it, you basically hide the risk in, as opposed to hedge the risk. And so they decided that's a good way to do it because it's not going to show up on my financial statement anyway if in a held to maturity account uh, and then they had a smaller amount in the um, available for sale account and all of that went underwater we, and they caught off guard without much of hedges so they had to sell those it's not clear if I take the mortgage books, it could be somewhere 10 to 20%, maybe longer. I, I looked at a bunch of banks. It's the losses are somewhere between 10, market market losses are between somewhere between 10, 15. Average in the banking system is somewhere 10 to 11% uh, overall banking system of their assets. Uh, but what's, sorry, uh, what's 10 to 11%? Say that again. They mark to market on the percent that the banking system is underwater on a mark if they had to mark to market. So this is including asset. available for sale and hold to maturity. Right. That's for the whole banking system. Um, for, um, for Silicon Valley Bank, because they didn't have, they didn't seem to have any hedges or have minuscule amount of hedges that they may have had a, bigger extension and also that the fact that the securities book was mostly mortgages that most probably 30 year mortgages so this extended 
not only they lost because of duration, they also lost because of negative convexity. So when they solve those, they realize the chunky loss. So those to pay the depositors, they realize the chunky loss sufficiently for them to find themselves that they are getting under undercapitalized. So they went out to borrow, uh, issue more capital. Mm -hmm. And that's when it was all over the media and depositors just flocked into uh, withdrawing their deposits. Right. So there are many uh, causes that contributed to the fall of Silicon Bank, uh, the outflow of deposits in 2022, you know, venture capital slowing down, the rapid withdrawal, the sale of the available for sales securities, which led to Silicon Valley Bank trying to raise additional capital with Goldman Sachs as their advisor. And you know, my opinion, not yours, I think Goldman Sachs did a, a very poor job uh, just in, in the optics. There's the fact that the Fed raised rates up, up to, to begin with, which you know I, I don't you know, fault the Fed for. Um, but specifically, let's hone in on this issue of interest rate risk that Silicon Valley Bank had and the degree to which they hedged it or reality, they did not really hedge them at all. And I want to compare your um, tenure as running the uh, uh, um, rate, interest rate risk for uh, Freddie Mac, and, and you did so successfully. You had you know, a mortgage book about over a little over half a trillion dollars. So you know, five or six times what Silicon Valley Bank had in terms of just, just, just total assets. And those weren't mortgage-backed securities. A lot, of, a lot of them were you know, just mortgages. So maybe, maybe it's even harder. What did you do? What do other professionals who successfully hedge interest rate risk do that Silicon Valley Bank did not do? You need to follow your mortgage portfolio. If you have a if you have leveraged your mortgage portfolio with mostly borrowed money, its risk is whatever the individual mortgage convexity risk is times the leverage. So it's very risky. The worst thing that you can do is take those securities and put it in an HDM portfolio and feel that you have minimized risk just because you are not reporting it. And that's the that's the, the thing that uh, Freddie Mac wouldn't do. Freddie Mac would mark their mortgage portfolio on a daily basis. Freddie Mac would compute their duration of their portfolio on a daily basis, compute their convexity, compute the exposure to changes in volatility on a daily basis. And so, you, because it doesn't matter whether it's held to maturity, whether it doesn't matter it's a loan book, whether it doesn't matter whether it's reported in financial statements, you when you lose money, you lose money. It doesn't. And if you lose small amount, maybe it's fine. If you lose large amount, it shows up no matter what. So Freddie Mac did daily reporting on the mark to market of the uh, mortgage valuation, daily hedging of the duration of the mortgage portfolio, and daily hedging of the uh, the and then also hedging the negative convexity using a multitude of optionality. Uh, the the duration was hedged typically with swaps, uh, and often for mortgages you need to hedge both refi risk and extension risk. So you have to uh, hedge both increases in rates and decreases in rates, but also Freddie Mac, and that's a Freddie Mac innovation in terms of hedging large amount of mortgages with a large amount of optionality. So Freddie Mac, if a large bulk use of swaptions was, in, was basically introduced at Freddie Mac, 
where uh, a large number of receive fix options were added to the portfolio and large number of pay fix options were added to the portfolio. So when rates declined and there was a, re a lot of refinance, interest rate, uh, the swaptions gained a lot of value to offset uh, the losses in the market market value of the mortgages. Similarly, uh, Freddie Mac would have uh, swaptions that do well in a uh, in higher interest rates. Protecting higher interest rate scenarios as well. So, uh, a multitude of optionality, mostly swaptions, but options and treasuries, etc. But large scale use of optionality uh, in hundreds of billions of dollars of notional to hedge the convexity of the portfolio. Redimac also use swaps, treasuries, futures, etc. to keep the duration under control. And you don't see the results of, our, of your hedge until there's interest rate moves a lot. If you remember in the 90s, we had, uh, as interest rate kept going uh, throughout, since the mid 80s, interest rates have, rates have been going lower and lower and lower. So when I was uh, managing convexity at uh, Freddie Mac's portfolio, the uh, the average coupon of, of the portfolio was about seven and a half percent mortgage rates, and then it gradually declined to six and a half and lower. So, and as it's going down, prepayments were happening. Freddie Mac is hedged and ready. After the LTCM crisis, interest rate went down in big one big step for flight to quality trades or what the all the other things that were happening at the same time. Then a couple of years later, there was a dot-com bust. And again, after the dot-com bust, interest rate in the United States went down even, her, her, even lower. It went really low. So at that point, all, all optionalities went through the strike and swaptions gained billions and billions of dollars in value. To, uh, to offset any sort of mortgage uh, negative convexity losses. So you could, uh, the first was that Freddie Mac uh, actually gained a lot when most other institutions uh, lost from, uh, from the uh, negative convexity or from ref large scale refinancing that happened post dot-com crisis. Maturity is when you get paid back on the fixed income. Uh, many mortgages in the U.S. are 30-year maturities. Duration, and this confused me many times, uh, sounds like it would mean maturity, and it is related to maturity, but it actually refers to interest rate sensitivity. So as interest rates go up, how much do you lose? When interest rates go down, uh, how, how much do you make? And then convexity is the rate at which you lose or make money. And the thing about mortgages is as interest rates go up, you lose more and more money and the rate at which you more more money you know per per basis point i i guess goes up in the, in the same way that if you're short a stock at ten dollars and it doubles and goes to twenty dollars you lose ten dollars but if it doubles again and goes to forty dollars you lose twenty dollars right so that's negative complexity perfect jack you you just described it perfectly the uh the duration duration sounds like time but it's better way to just think about it it's just a sensitivity to interest rates how much what percent your bond will increase in value if interest rate goes down by a percent? Right. And so uh, by the time you, you started at Freddie Mac, 
the use of interest rate swaps that was you know that was already a, a thing euro dollar market off uh, you know uh, libor stuff like that but you you with know, saying you really were at the forefront of using swap shuns an, an option to enter an interest rate swap and so that has positive convexity to offset the negative convexity of of the mortgage book yes yes it was a it was a difficult exercise because mortgages have very complex optionality because it's very behavioral and you hedge it with simpler optionality like swaptions and treasury options. And so that means that you will have to make a, a lot of assumption about how fast, how slow homeowners will refinance, et cetera, and then match it. And what, and that's it. That's there's, there's a science, but there is a, uh, also a, a trial and error aspect of it. And it worked out really well to the types of optionality that uh, we used at Freddie Mac and how it uh, helped hedge the mortgage portfolio really well in the, the, the rally throughout the 90s. But yes, uh, I, I, I must say that uh, we started the, uh, the large scale use of swaptions for mortgage portfolio. Prior to that, the swap and swaption market in the 80s was much smaller to hedge basically debt issuance. Uh, when the when underwriters issue corporate debt, they would hedge some of that in time of issuance. But this type of trillion dollar scale swaption market started by Freddie Mac. Right. So thanks for, for explaining that about how to properly hedge a large book of bonds and more and mortgages mortgage-backed securities now let's go to silicon valley bank a lot of people are blaming it on the vcs they're blaming it on the fed uh, they're blaming it on the interest rate risk management my question for you is the question everyone wants to know mustafa what interest rate hedges did silicon valley had in place and to what degree was that were those hedges that plan sufficient to handle the enormous uh rise in interest rates last year for the Silicon Valley Bank, it was minuscule. Uh, just uh, looking at the balance sheet, uh, the off-balance sheet items, it looked like a minuscule amount of swaps on their uh, in their balance sheet. I don't know what uh, what those minuscule amount of swaps was for, but you can safely assume that there wasn't much of a hedge. What are your your thoughts? Is um, that negligence? Uh, yeah, uh, it's not. I don't know whether it's negligence. I would say. It is uh, really not knowing. Some of it is it is new, so it's hard to predict. Uh, and for and that the part that is hard to predict and something new is that the the deposit the speed with which uh, deposit flew out of Silicon Valley Bank wa uh, wasn't modelable or um, or even predictable in my opinion. Only uh, intuition common sense would have predicted it. There is no model that would have helped. So that part uh, is uh, is something new. Uh, even then, uh, the, the, the part that they didn't hedge at all, their AFS and HTM portfolio, it's endemic in the banking system. And I wouldn't say negligence, but it may be inexperience with interest rate risk. Yes. So uh, they did not have any hedges on or very few hedges on for those securities, treasuries, mortgage-backed securities that were in the available for sale and 
and hold to maturity. Hedges that if they were on would have netted them some profit to you know, uh, generate additional capital during the t- hard time of 2022. Precisely. And it, I think it just reflects inexperience because most of the uh, last time interest rate risk was a thing was 20 years ago. So most people running and making these decisions haven't seen the uh, interest rate risk biting them. Right. And uh, so, yeah, how bad and, you know, feel free to not use a judgmental term. A lot of people are using judgmental terms, but how bad, you know, uh, not, not negligence, but how improper, how responsible, not on the deposit side, but on the asset side is just this, this lack of hedges. Like, you know, and, and to what degree, if, if you or someone like you, someone who really had a good hedging program, would we, with Silicon Valley Bank, not have been taken over and shut down by the FDIC? If I were running this, I would smell the risk, uh, the risk right away because I have seen this, I've lived it my, on my life, and I know how uh, this can bite. Uh, and so I, I would have completely differently addressed this. The, the idea of just doing accounting stuff, moving from AFS to HTM, thinking that that will uh, weather me from Fed hikes is uh, just reflects inexperience. I, I I don't want to be judgmental, but it reflects inexperience. And it's a big time problem in the banking system today, uh, lack of experience with interest rate risk. And I, I can extend some of this the answers that we're talking about to uh, many banks. Available for sale is they're marking them to market and hold to maturity is they're saying, we're not going to sell these at all and we're going to be paid $100 at the end of it. So we're not going to be marking them down to 90 cents on the dollar, 80 cents on the dollar if interest rates rise. And then you know people say, oh, oh the, the hold to market, uh, uh, hold to maturity uh, portfolio is not interest rate hedged and is supposed to not be interest rate hedged because they, they're they never going to have to sell them. What do you say to that? Uh, I say that um, you will never have to sell them is um, is a that reflects not understand, understanding tail risks because um, you may have to sell them because extreme things happen. Uh, and so that's, if the security is very complex, it's better to know the complexity, know the risk of losing money and know the tail scenarios rather than decide that not to know it, thinking that it's not going to happen. So just this whole assumption of we will never have to sell it is okay in a moderate range of interest rates, not okay in extreme interest rate changes. Silicon Valley's problem really triggered this because of the flighty deposits they they had, but the risk that Silicon Valley Bank had in their balance sheet is not uncommon in the banking system. And uh, so the, the, it's just that the rest of the banking system, uh, the deposits are le- possibly less flighty than Silicon Valley, but not as flighty. By flighty, I mean how fast it's gonna, it can be withdrawn, but it still could surprise the system how flighty it can get for the overall banking system. So the overall 
American banking system, if you look at uh, the um, their balance sheets, it's about $23 trillion of assets in, in the, the whole system. So uh, many times larger uh, than Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae was, of course, it's a, out of the $23 trillion, uh, 2.6, 2.7 trillion are MBS, uh, MBS portfolio. Just mostly Freddie Fannie. There's not a lot of worries about credit risk. And then another two and a half ish trillion dollars of mortgage loans that hasn't been securitized, but still has similar characteristics of that can be prepaid, et cetera. So five trillion, a little bit more than five trillion of uh, assets out of the uh, twenty-three trillion dollar of uh, balance sheet that has the optionality risk uh, or very high negative convexity because a big most of these are um, thirty-year uh, thirty-year maturity. A lot of at least the securities portion is 30 years maturity. So the banking system, and I think that's a that's a mistake that uh, sh they shouldn't have done. So when the uh, the drum bits of Fed hikes were happening in second half of 2021, and then uh, later in third quarter, Chairman Powell suddenly said that oh, it's not transitory; it's actually permanent. There was several months of scope for banking system to put on hedges on their some of this highly negatively convex portion of their securities portfolio, which included the 2.6, 2.7 trillion dollars of MBS. Instead, what I'm not saying all, as an industry, what they did, they moved a chunk of it from a available for sale account where they have to mark to market to the health to maturity account where they have they don't have to mark to market. So they just position themselves for the Fed hike storm by not having to mark to market, not uh, setting it up so that they don't have to mark to market. And it's it's okay to do that if you if you thought that the, uh, the Fed was done in 200 basis point or 300 basis point because they remember they were well capitalized from the beginning. So they thought that, oh, a couple of hundred basis point, a hike, I don't want to waste any money hedging. I may as well put it in the HTM account where I don't have to mark to market, so I don't have to hedge. And after some time, the Fed will stop hiking and we'll be all fine. So that's, that's the preparation going into the hike for mostly um, mid-tier banks, but some of the big ones too, and the uh, small ones too. It's just uh, across the board, there was, uh, when I looked at the chart from the FDIC's data, it showed about one and a half trillion dollars just relocated into the health to maturity account. So uh, so they went unhedged. I think they were betting that uh, the Fed, it's reasonable bet in the sense that the Fed was uh, not hiking. Uh, Fed, Fed had left interest rate at zero for for uh, how many years? Almost uh, 13 years. So 
if you are in a zero interest rate scenario for 13 years, it's hard for you to imagine 5% Fed funds. Your incremental thinking is 100 basis point Fed funds, or there may be eight hikes, maybe uh, 200 basis point Fed funds. At the worst, maybe 300 basis point Fed funds. 500 is not in there, was not in their radar. Especially in a year, you know, the, the hike that started with uh, uh, Janet Yellen's, oh, 25 basis points, then a year later, okay, 25, every very, very gentle um, up to the 2018, which led to the, the Powell pivot, this time extremely violent surge upwards. So it was the speed with which it did it. That's right. S- size and speed, both uh, when uh, I, I don't think the banking system was not uh, was prepared for. 75, 75 base point clips in each, each hike, there was significant losses in the banking system. And it's mostly in the, uh, you can see that in the AFS book, how much they have lost, but even in the health to maturity and the whole loans, there are comparable losses. And it's, that's the, that's the first order loss. Remember, there is a second order, which is the convexity loss. So to give you a, an idea of how much the losses could be, because there is no full, uh, full estimate, some people, researchers have said, overall, it's somewhere around, the whole banking system is underwater by about 11%, and there's a distribution around it, some uh, all the way to 30, some less than, last, some like 5 6%, but average, I saw one research that says about 10, 11%. That seems reasonable. Uh, so that's uh, 11% of 23 trillion is still more than $2 trillion underwater for the banking system. And it's somehow under hidden under the health to maturity cover or uh, unsecuritized mortgage cover. But to give you an idea of not just the loss that already happened, what might happen if you have, if Fed does another 100 or 200 or 300, every successive 100 is you lose more than the last 100. Uh, take the Fed's mortgage portfolio. So that's 2.6 trillion. And they haven't been able to reduce it much while they're doing QE. Maybe it went down by 100 billion, but it's very minuscule. So American homeowners, they were paying somewhere in the mid. Three percent. Then now they're paying about seven percent. So sorry, Mustafa. Uh, the new mortgage people, if they want to get a new mortgage, are paying seven percent. If you got a two point nine percent mortgage, you still are paying two point nine percent, even though it, uh, it's at seven percent. And that's the gain in the American consumer that the Fed is bearing and that banks are bearing. The consumers are super happy, and that's why it's so. The consumer balance sheet is so solid. I mean, I got a two point nine percent mortgage. I'm not gonna, never going to sell my house or move anywhere. I'm going to hang on to it. So that's the happy side of it. That's probably why we see consumers so robust in the middle of all these hikes and all that, that their balance sheet, not only they well, feel wealthier, they also have a very low duration. And I'll come, I, that's what I, I was getting to. So Fed lost, a, I, I don't know how much they don't report their loss. The Fed, I, I'm using the Fed's balance sheet to give an idea about the rest of the banking systems, of what their ex- how much they could have lost and how much their exposure. So on a 2.6 trillion 
uh, mortgage portfolio, you had about three and a half percent, at least in the primary mortgage rate increase. So you lose. So uh, you, if I look, uh, I did an estimate, just a simple Bloomberg model at, uh, estimate of the duration at the beginning of the Fed at, at the early 2022 versus duration of Fed's balance sheet, given that we know the coupons that Fed holds. So we can have some idea about each coupon, how much more dura duration, how much more sensitive Fed's mortgages are than they were at the beginning of the hiking cycle. And it will boggle your mind. I And again, these are all approximate using Bloomberg duration estimates, not my own. It's almost similar to Fed adding 900 billion 10-year treasuries into their balance sheet just from the extension of the mortgages they already have in their book, given the duration change that has happened because Fed's portfolio is mostly 2% and 2.5% mortgages. So I, I don't wanna even attempt to estimate the losses, but I can estimate how much more riskier it has become. So, and Fed's not, an exception, banks accumulated mortgages at the same speed as they were originated, as Fed did. So banks' mortgage portfolio is probably somewhat similar in terms of how many 2% coupon, how many 2.5% coupon, how many 3% coupon uh, in their book. So they may have extended in a similar way for their mortgage portfolio. So if Fed does another 100 basis point hike, they will lose how, what they lost in the past 100 base point hike, and they will lose extra because they have now more sensitivity to interest rate because of the negative convexity. The Fed has lost a lot of money on the mortgage-backed securities or lost money. If they were to sell those, they would be at severely lower prices than at the price at which they bought them. And the rate at which those securities are declining in value that has increased uh, because they are negatively convex. So if I, you said $900 billion of 10-year treasury equivalent uh, of convexity. So, risk. Of, of basis point risk. Of additional risk, yes. Uh, or basis point risk or additional duration risk. $900 billion of additional basis point risk on the Fed has been added just because the Fed raises rates. Is it too dramatic of inter an interpretation to say that in some way, that is kind of like the Federal Reserve is doing QE, not on securities, but on convexity and duration. Precisely. So if you look, you have to look at a balance sheet just as the cash, uh, you had liabilities and you have assets. So on the liability side, Fed have reserves and reverse repos, et cetera. On the asset side, they have treasuries, mortgages, and some other things. So there is a dollar amounts, so that's the cash balance sheet. And the QT that they're doing is basically reducing the cash balance sheet, just the cash amount. And that's causing the reserves in the banking system, mostly reducing the reserves on the liability side. But balance sheets are not just cash. Balance sheets are also the, the risk balance sheet, which is the uh, duration on the asset side, duration on the liability side, and then other risks like convexity on the asset side and convexity on the liability side. 
Fed is the by extending the by the by the extension of the mortgage portfolio by the Fed. Fed is taking risk from homeowners' balance sheets to their own balance sheet. And since it's government, probably nothing will happen because of that. But they are actually, by doing that, they are doing QE, but it, what I call a duration QE. That they are Q, they're doing QT on cash. They are doing QE on duration. They're pumping stimulus back by allowing homeowners uh, to have less risk and appetite to take more, more risk. And that, in my mind, explains why risk premium has been fairly low at this point of the hiking cycle. So everything that I say about Fed also applies to the banking system. But the banking system is not Fed. They are subject to shareholders discipline. They're subject to bondholders discipline. Until last weekend, they were also subject to depositors discipline, but now government has backstopped the depositors, but they're not off the hook because shareholders um, will still want to know how much underwater the bank is given that they own some of the shares and how much the bondholders would like to know how much underwater the bank is in um, in terms of uh, the mark-to-market the value. And that's where the banking systems mark-to-market value have. Just like the Fed, where Fed took down a significant part of the homeowner's balance sheet from homeowners to its own book and actually doing duration QE, banking system is doing it something parallel. They're taking homeowner's risk and putting on their balance sheet. And so they extended their duration they took losses probably equivalent to just for the mortgage portfolio uh, to the Fed and probably double uh, double with the rest of the non-unsecuritized mortgage portfolio. So I, I, the research that I've seen that uh, on average 10 to 11 percent to two and a half trillion dollars of already mark to market losses in the banking systems balance sheet. Right, right. So, Mustafa, so the the commercial banking system keeps securities and loans available for sale, marking to market, and then hold to maturity. Oh, we're not going to mark them to market. We're just going to let them mature. In the Federal Reserve always does holds holds to maturity unless they are selling assets, which they very rarely do. Quantitative tightening is only balance sheet runoff. It's it is not selling assets. So I want to go hone in on the commercial banking system. Uh, prior to this conversation, we were having a little chat and you said that, oh, yeah, every decade or so, this always happens with the banks and this might get you know a, a little bit worse than it than before it gets better. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I want, I want you to use your words, not mine. And then also, could you dig into that 10 to 11 percent of losses of what the 23, 25 trillion dollars on the bank um, balance sheet of assets and liabilities? How much of what is the percentage of equity of, of shareholder equity, tangible equity? One analysis that I have seen is uh, the mark-to-market losses are below uh, are more than the amount of equity they have uh, for uh, more, almost half the banking system. So you're saying half of the banking system could have negative equity in terms of the the losses on these securities could be greater than the current 
equity or market cap or book value of the, the entire company. Yeah, and the, I remember the loss on the mortgage, whole loan mortgages too, because those are in those are those have a in theory, even if they never have to be, they may not have to be sold. In theory, there is a value to them. I've seen other research that showed uh, close to half uh, the security loss is higher than the capital because it's a 10% on average loss. The capital is way smaller than the 10% on average. But the, there's a two tails. There are very safe banks on the one, one side of the tail. There are less safe banks on the other. So the, if the Fed's guaranteed the, the deposits, insured and uninsured, what it does, it, um, it protects uh, us from a systemic bank run. So that's probably not going to happen. There, there's a lot of positive news that we haven't discussed about, which is that it's also about the liabilities and the deposit base. So, for example, Bank of America, just you know, by my own research, has about $113 billion worth of unrealized losses on its security book. However, its deposit base is one of the most solid in the entire world. It's 30% of it. Only 30% is uninsured. 70% of it is insured under the $250,000 limit. And as you said, the, the FDIC, Treasury, Fed, they did a bank word, bailout to use a, the B word uh, just, for the, this, just for those two banks that, that failed, Signature Bank and uh, Silicon Valley Bank. But you know, perhaps they would do it for the future. So the, and the money has to go somewhere. You know, it, it goes, if it withdraws out from Silicon Valley Bank, it will go to JP Morgan, Bank of America. If it goes out from Bank of America, you know, where, where is it going to go? So there's a lot of positive news on the banking sector that we, we haven't talked about. But just just tell me about just how big of a problem you think this is. You know, again, going back to your quotes of this happens every 10 years and it will get worse before it gets better. Yeah. The problem number one is uh, inflation, that we are uh, starting to break the system um, and haven't really done much in reducing inflation so it uh so it leaves uh, and then the prop so that's one and i'll go to each one of them problem number two no one knows much about the pe business in the global financial system because there's no market there's no i don't who knows what the risk of that is and so then it has never been sort of prick uh like poked and checked whether how vulnerable that business is and so and but the sizes that uh, again there is no clear-cut numbers on it but sizes that you hear is like it's at least 10 trillion and maybe significant low higher than 10 trillion so so that we may be able to see what kind of risk the PE business has uh, whether it's systemic or not because no one really knows uh, how that, uh, what's the size of it, what are the exposures of the businesses, any of that. And as we are stressing, uh, we'll know more. So I'll come to that later. The first one, this uh, Fed being torn with very high inflation and banks start to crack. Let's say path number one, they say inflation is more important than banks. And we are already uh, protecting, we will extend what we given to these two banks that will protect the depositors. 
just decides to hike another 100. So the next 100 hike is going to be not the same as the last 100 hike. Because uh, the, I, I, there's a third point that I would also uh, talk about. That's the Fed's reverse repo, which is smaller, but it has an effect in, the, in actual mechanism. But the next 100 hike is going to be, in my opinion, pretty bad because uh, banking system is starting now at a very, very high duration for like a big chunk of their mortgages are at least seven year duration, maybe seven and a half. And at that duration, a hundred basis point could mean every hundred basis point means 7% loss on their mortgage book. Uh, and the whole, uh, the agency whole loan book, the, the whole loan book, maybe ch chunky loss in their commercial uh, mortgage losses as well, because a lot of the commercial loans are also real estate related. So you got a bunch of real estate related exposures that the next hundred basis point would be uglier than the last one in terms of what has happened so far. That might trigger a faster deposit flight uh, because it will be much more prominent that depositors who are sitting on low interest deposits in the banks would then be incented to move money out from regionals and small, small guys to the big ones at a much faster speed, making a clear distinction between types of banks, the size, etc. So that's, uh, that's risk number one that it, if Fed does hike, it will be worse. The next hundred will be worse than the last hundred. If it doesn't hike, then we got in a serious inflation problem in the, in the economy. And which one is uglier? Uh, it's, it's an, it, that's called the decision, uh, a big decision quagmire I see for the Fed. Like you choose between two bad ones. There is no good ones in, uh, in terms of choices for them. Uh, for the next hike. Markets clearly pricing that they're not going to hike anymore. They're going to ease. And if the ease in the face of 6% inflation, that looks very ugly to me for the economy as a whole. So that's number one, that next 100 is not going to be pretty. Or not doing next, uh, or easing, uh, also not going to be pretty. Right. And so, so on the banking uh, system, you said deposit flight a word that sounds scary, and it can be scary for some of the regional banks, but many times it's you're withdrawing uh, money from a deposit account that bears zero interest, a checking account, and you're putting it into a CD or a savings account. And so it's the bank, the money stays there, it just has to pay more for it. So it's a bank profitability issue, not a bank liquidity issue. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I take, uh, yeah. People, uh, there may not be deposits going out of the bank. Uh, but bank have to pay a significantly higher interest rate on the deposits uh, that they have now as they reprice it. So compression in net interest margin is going to be hard and fast and large, completely opposite of what analysts were expecting last year, that banks will actually make more by interest rate increase. And so that's a profitability issue, but there is a, another piece to it uh, which is uh, there is an attractive 
outlet for depositors uh, that wasn't there before. That that money can leave the banking system altogether and go to the Fed because Fed's got a two point almost two and a half trillion dollar reverse repo program, which gives you full fair short term interest rate uh, to a depositor. So I can just go take my money out, put in a money market fund that invests in Fed's rever- rever- overnight reverse repo and risk free. I'm fully depriced the new Fed fund, new interest rates in the Fed. So it's Fed itself put a uh, program that will compete for deposits with the banking system. So on the one side, it will guarantee the deposit. On the other side, they're going to compete with the banking system. So it's not necessarily just from one bank to the other or within one bank from uh from uh, low interest rate to higher interest rate. So, but it's also some of it could exit the banking system. And if, and talking about catch 22, if feds to shut it down, the RRP program, then they'll have to pump another two and a half trillion dollar into the banking system as reserves. That sounds like not QT, but QE. In the uh, when in, in, uh, inflation is six percent, so there is no good choices right now for the Federal Reserve, and uh, bank profitability will have to decline. Uh, and we saw that in the regional bank share prices. Uh, if you look at the KRE and all the ETFs, mm-hmm. how they behaved in the last few days, uh, I wouldn't shop for low price, cheap, uh, cheap regional bank stock yet, not knowing what Fed will do first. Uh, I'm getting I'm getting a little anxious as you say that. So there are, you know, is the US banks safe? There are three aspects. Number one is deposits, which before this issue was up to a quarter million dollars uh, for the banks, two banks that failed, it's, it's now effectively un- unlimited uninsured deposits. Uh, then there's the uh, bank debt. Oh, I'm lending to a certain bank and I'm getting six percent. You know, what's the risk there? And then there's the bank shares. You know, one one company. You know, the the beleaguered ones are you know have declined something like 90 percent, and that's that's what you're talking about. So you know, it's my view. Uh, I could be wrong, but that the deposits are safe. So you know, I don't want people watching this interview and pulling my. So so what's the safety of it on deposits, bank debt, and, and equity? Yeah, the bank uh, deposits are safe because government just guaranteed it uh, or it will extend the guarantee that they have given to the first two banks. So deposits are safe. Depositors are protected. And that's the intent of the government to protect the depositors. But they are not going to protect this equity holders or uh, unsecured debt holders. And the profitability, the margin compression is going going to be happening going forward and faster compression if Fed hikes more, so the, so you protect one part of the banking system, which is deposits, and you make other parts more risky. You can't do all three safe, then you'll have to fully nationalize the banking system. Right. Well, even that doesn't save the, deposit, the equity holders. So it's negative for equity holders, no matter how you look at it, unless the Fed starts cutting again. Unless, of course, 
the 80% declines are that the market has gone down too far and it it's the it only should have gone down 30% in which case it could be a bargain but yeah the bank bailouts of 2008 depositors obviously bank debt and bank equity this bailout which i'm calling a bailout because everyone else calls a bailout uh is only for depositors not bank debt not bank equity just want to uh, uh hone in that point mustafa you know um I, I, I want to get to this issue because you're an expert in hedging interest rate risk. Silicon Valley Bank did a poor job, my words, not yours, of hedging their interest rate risk. Practically, you know, no hedges on it at all. Uh, other, some people say, oh, yes, that's just Silicon Valley Bank. But banks hedge their interest rate risk. All these banks are, are hedged. Come on. That's an incomplete. You know, I posted a chart of or a, a screenshot from Bank of America's uh, gross unrealized losses on you know 113 billion on many of them hold to maturity securities, but what we're talking about, and they said, Jack, they're hedged. Come on, it's irresponsible for you to say that without saying that they're hedged. And I looked into the hedging, and I'm not an expert on it, so it's you know hard for me to read. What is this? It's it a it's a positive or negative? I'm I'm a little confused. Income or interest expense, whatever. But it didn't seem like the numbers on the hedging were anywhere comparable to the 113 billion dollars. That's just one example of Bank of America. To what degree is it true that banks have hedged their their interest rate exposure, and to what degree is it true that they've hedged enough? The um, if they were hedged as an industry, then they wouldn't be underwater. The median would not be underwater ten percent or more. So that's uh, of their balance sheet. That's two plus trillion, two and a half probably trillion dollars underwater. And, uh, loss if they were they had hedged. What you see is some banks. If you look at their off balance sheet uh, reports on the, if you you can go to FDIC's website and you can see those schedules, you will see some banks have uh, swaps in place uh, to hedge duration um, of their uh, of their balance sheet, and you can get some idea about the size. Of course, you can. The best way to see it, how what is the mark-to-market value of the balance sheet? And some of that also reported in the FDIC. Wait, but Mustafa, isn't if if the, there are declines in the hold to maturity account, are those reported on the on um in bank in book value? The book value of the hold to maturity account is reported. Uh, the uh, the mark-to-market is there is a mark-to-market balance sheet in. Uh, in the uh, in the uh, for the HTM book in the uh, uh, FDIC report, and I think in some financial report there is also some guess, some probably approximate uh, mark to market of the loan book as well. So if someone takes a fine comb and they could figure this out, uh, the the total loss. There is no way the banking system is hedged in anywhere close to what is uh, necessary because they never predicted that the Fed hike will be this large and they never predicted the effect of technology on repricing of deposit interest rates, the speed with which they have to reprice the deposit interest rate. Both directions, it was, uh, there was no way they could hedge and they didn't hedge. There may be some the big guys, big boys did some hedging. Uh, you can see in the off-balance sheet and uh, uh, the off-balance sheet uh, derivatives report some idea about the extent of hedging. But no, the banking system is not hedged. 
it will make clear distinction now between the hedged and non-hedged uh, and the big and the small going forward. And what degree do you think they were hedged? If, uh, if a 100% hedge, you know, they made as much money with their hedges as the, the book value declined uh, because of the interest rate. That was never going to happen because, you know, banks would never, it was a, a tail risk scenario. The Fed would raise to 4.75%. But what percentage are we talking? 60% hedged, 40% hedged, rough, rough number, of course. I wouldn't think more than 20% hedged to this kind of scenario because, uh, because 5% inter- 5% um, Fed funds rate or 4.75% Fed funds rate is many standard deviation uh, increase was not in the radar of anyone to hedge this kind of scenario, have instruments that will protect them for this kind of scenario. In When the interest rate was up, uh, maybe first few hikes, it was hedged better for this. But now I think the exposure is really high. Again, I'm... Uh, it's I don't have this one. I uh, the accuracy. This I'm just talking, uh, talking, out, uh, thinking out loud rather than actually giving you an accurate number. Mm-hmm. But uh, so now let's go to the positives, which is you know, for deposits. You know, can be sticky. Uh, people will. You know, there will be some percentage of people who keep their money as a checking account at zero percent interest. Banks can lend money at higher rates, right? So that's why people say rising rates were, were good for banks, even though you, we had now have this huge issue. Uh, the banking system is much better capitalized uh, after the great financial crisis than it was before. In fact, you know, Steve Eisman from the Big Short, I saw he did another interview where he said it was, you know, the, I think, the best capitalized I've seen in my lifetime. So there are many positives on the, the banking system. I'm sure there are many which I did not mention. But so how do you weigh the risk and reward, the good and the bad of the banking system, uh, given that there are many positives, but there's also this issue which which you seem to believe is, is quite huge and it's, it's unhedged. I agree that it's very well capitalized. Uh, that's probably why uh, it allowed the banks not get into a hiking cycle, uh, not uh, hedging as much because it may not have been needed given their capital situation. But when the interest rate goes up to a level that's way beyond the level that you assumed or used as an input in figuring out your capital, then you start to think that maybe uh, you start to be more exposed and, and less capitalized than you had assumed. Maybe uh, also for credit risks, they are very well capitalized. And credit risk is not a problem in the United States just because the household's balance sheet is so solid. It's just the compression of margin is um, very very fast. And the uh, the compression of net interest margin would be faster than expected. And the other is this technology. Did that take into account that deposits will reprice so quickly to the new higher interest rate. If they assumed it in their capital calculation properly, then they would would have more capital. But again, that was very hard to figure out. The technology has a big effect on 
how people, how quickly people have more information. There's social media. There's more people are sharing information. So hoping that a lot of depositors will keep their deposit at a very low interest rate for a long period of time. And in, as in the past interest rate hike scenarios, uh, may not realize. Uh, you just use your app to move money. Uh, you don't have to go to the branch. You know what the, the, the banks are bombarding you with money market funds, bombarding with you with new high interest rates. It's easy. It's harder to uh, it, it. It if th that would also be an assumption. None of this create a banking panic chaos. Uh, deposit flight is the wrong word to use, uh, but repricing of net interest margin tighter is much more than assumed. Right and. How do you think the risk is of uh, future takeovers? You know, FDIC will have to take over regional banks, like we saw with Signature and Silicon Valley Bank. Um, given the new Fed facility, which will allow banks to pledge these loans at par value, at 100 cents on the dollar, not the 70, 80 cents on the dollar. So uh, even though they will have to pay interest on that, do you think that reduces the risk, eliminates the risk of, of you know, future uh, bank panics will, will people will withdraw? Or is it so dependent on confidence in the banking system and confidence is a human emotional thing that it, it doesn't make sense to, to, to really make a prediction? There will be less, uh, clearly fewer bank runs as, the, as we expect the, the uninsured deposits will be, all deposits will be guaranteed by the government. Uh, so there will be probably uh, less likely to have bank runs. But uh, in sol there could be a problem with uh, insolvency. The, the and then the deposits still moving from smaller banks to larger banks. There will be still some turmoil in the banking system, not in the form of bank runs, but uh, but the uh, the the backstop that um, has been off offered. Uh, in the last weekend's package seems very generous right now, may actually be uh, easily tapped at some, especially if Fed hikes. If Fed goes to 6% Fed funds, 7% Fed funds, 8% Fed funds, as uh, my colleague Dominic is calling for, mm -hmm. then yeah, we will have more banks um, uh, more banks taken over will have tapping more into the, uh, the fund, the backstop funds. Right. And uh, so you are the chief rate strategist at MacroHive. Dominique is your colleague, and I'm uh, lucky to interview her with, with Joseph Wang, so people can check that out. Banks now, because banks can access that liquidity from the Federal Reserve with a term of up to one year, an FDIC takeover, you're saying, is is somewhat unlikely and then i also want to get your thoughts on correct. to what degree correct yes correct yes yes what about banks needing to be taken over there are rumors as we're recording of thursday march 16th i'm not going to name any names and because this interview will air you know a few days after we're, we're filming of a bank which has access to that facility and they also can pledge you know, mortgages at uh, the federal home loan bank tons of liquidity right. rumors of many 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 billions of dollars of liquidity Rumors are they're going to be taken over, not by the FDIC, but by a competitor. Uh, would that make sense? And do you have a view on, you know, would shareholders be, you know, wiped out? Wait, yeah. 
I, I have a feeling that there will be a lot of mergers uh, coming up, uh, small ones taken over by the large. Uh, there is some accounting quirk that uh, adds a little bit more complexity. Uh, mergers are a little easier if banks don't have a lot of HTM securities in their balance sheet because otherwise they'll have to mark all the HTM securities during the merger process. When you too. So that's why when banks are ready to have a lot of mergers and takeovers, they tend to have more AFS securities so uh, so that it's uh, mechanically easier to merge. But that's a detail. Uh, but yes, there will be a lot of consolidation coming up. Uh, right. And w one thing I think that just highlights how the problem here is, is interest rate risk, not credit risk, is a lot of the banks that are having issues have credit quality that is off the charts good. I mean, the Silicon Valley Bank, over half of their loans were in like capital call loans, which has had one default in the history of the entire bank. Uh, so this is about interest rate risk. And that's, I'm glad we're talking about you know, rate risk and not uh, credit risk. Mustafa, I've got a final question for you. But before I do, how can people get in touch with you? Tell us about the work that you do at, at Macro Hive. And uh, do you have a Twitter account? I, I, some, uh, you know, after my interview, Dominique created her Twitter account. Anyway, we can get you on Twitter. Yes, I have a Twitter account, but I don't tweet as often as I should. Uh, but I will start uh, tweeting going forward. And uh, it's easy to search. Uh, it's Chowdhury, M-U-S-T, uh, uh, at Chowdhury, M-U-S-T. And it's, but as um, uh, I, I will start tweeting more uh, in the future. So I do have a Twitter account and we plan to get in more involved with uh, tweeting. So easy to reach me there. I can also reach be reached at uh, macrohive.com, uh, uh, mustafa.chowdhury at macrohive.com. I am in other social media, LinkedIn, all, all of the social media. So you can search my name anywhere and uh, you can get that. And I uh, basically focus at uh, Macrohive, not necessarily on the banks. It's just a part of the bigger task, which I basically uh, advise clients on interest rate, uh, curve positioning, vol positioning, rate views, uh, et cetera, FX views, et cetera. Right, and so you talk a lot about macro and I'd love to have you back. We, we can talk about that. Uh, my final question for you is, what is the best thing that can happen for the banks in terms of interest rates? On terms of the credit side, obviously if defaults stay low, that's, that's great for the banking. If they explode higher, that's really bad for the banking system, but, do do, do, you, do do the banks, do they need interest rates to go even higher so they make money on their loans? Do they want them to stay where they are or do they need a cut so the, so the uh, securities that have lost value actually increase? Interest rate uh, even higher is going to be deadly, I think, for banks. I think the, if the Fed cuts, that's the best thing that can happen to the banking system. They don't have to cut it back to zero, maybe 100, maybe, you know, maybe 100, maybe 200. Uh, cut will uh, will be uh, stabilize the uh, the mark to market underwater mark to market uh, loss situation. No matter how whether where it's sitting on HTM or whole loans reported not reported, if I buy a bank stock, I'm gonna check the mark to market situation of their balance sheet, and most uh, informed investor will do that, so it cannot be avoided. Unless so that in the Fed could fix it by lowering interest rates, 
Mm. That's the best thing that can happen to them. Do you think the banks will get those cuts? Those cuts are being priced into the market and the, the forward curve, historic rally yeah. in, in short-term interest rates. Um, what, do you, what do you think this will do? And, and you know, of course, we got the Fed meeting next week. If we uh, take at face value, Fed speak for the last few weeks after the January payroll number, I would say that they could charge ahead with another 25, even if the forwards are not saying another 25. Um, that's, that's not zero chance, but any common, my common sense tells me that they will not hike in the next uh, week's meeting. Uh, because it, they, they, uh, it will be uh, some turmoil if they don't hike. And they could just wait for a few months and see where things go and then restart hiking if inflation kicks in again. Already very high. Uh, but they could also... The, the chance of not hiking... Uh, chance of a hike is still uh, not zero. There is a possibility that they could still hike and that would defy the market. That would just be bad for the market because market has pretty much priced out any hike. Market's priced at 100 basis point ease by the end of the year, um, even all the way down to fives and tens. Um, Markets uh, price, the, if you look at the tips curve, uh, two-year tips, uh, it's gone down to, uh, you got, um, it's gone down a lot. So the market is positioned for expectation of a permanent high um, inflation. So there is a, there is a scenario, there is a scenario that's possible where Fed just gives up hiking even at this high inflation rate and your tips portfolio uh, and and then we could have inflation for a several years at a higher than at target level current two percent level so tips portfolio could do very well uh, over a long period of time so that's what i am recommending my clients uh, in terms of it's not a trade recommendation but just mm -hmm. a idea suggestion that uh, the tips curve is good because Fed could actually put up with a higher target than they are saying that their target is. Right, that's interesting. Yeah, um, uh, tips is Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. Uh, Correct. Sorry, uh, I didn't explain it. Yeah, and it's not a recommendation to trade. It's just uh, uh, this is the an idea that I like, uh, given that Fed is in a limbo. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, well, Mustafa, we'll, we'll leave it there. You've been so generous with your time and insights. You really were so pivotal in the concept of interest rate hedges from its history. So it's great to get you comments on the hedging that's in the banking system right now, given that that is you know kind of at the eye of the storm of what's going on during the, the banking system. Uh, this has been, you know, I've done a fair number of interviews, and this has been definitely one of the most illuminating. So I really appreciate you, you sharing, sharing your views, and uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. Great, Jack. Thanks for having me. Wow, that conversation blew my mind. I hope you found it as valuable as I did. Just a reminder, today's show is brought to you by Macrohive. 
For a 40% discount on an annual subscription of MacroHive Prime, go to macrohive.com slash jack or use code jack at checkout. That's macrohive.com slash jack or use code jack at checkout. Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you soon.